Hey, everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and, of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. And today we have our very first sponsor of the podcast, my friend Hank Green. Now Hank Green had his first book come out. I'm going to read to you if you haven't read it, pick it up now. It's called An Absolutely Remarkable Thing. It's on my bookshelf, highly recommend. But anyways, I'm going to tell you about it. It was released in 2018 and it's the story of a young woman thrown into and then growing her fame as the world suddenly has to deal with massive changes in the form of contagious dreams and mysterious 10 foot tall robots that have appeared in every major city. The Associated Press said it was a thrilling journal that take or thrilling journey that takes a hard look at the power of fame and our willingness to separate a person from the brand. Book uh, book reporter said it was perhaps as honest a look as we'll ever get into the phenomenon of cyber fame. And the San Francisco Chronicle said, sparkling with mystery, humor, and the uncanny, this is a fun read, but beneath its effervescent tone, more complex themes are at play. I agree. Well, now that novel is out in paperback. You can get your hands on it now at your local library. Don't forget your libraries. Um, and it's also available for super cheap in the audio form. And the sequel and con- uh, conclusion of the story, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor, is out to sparkling reviews. Hank wanted his publisher to sponsor a bunch of um, indie or small podcasts, but they said that that was a little bit weird. So Hank took part of his advance and did it himself. Ta-da! And... Uh, his book is out. Okay. So it says the library journal uh, starred review says that throughout this adventure, venturous, witty and compelling novel green delivers sharp social commentary on the power of social media and both the benefits and horrendous consequences that follow when we give too much of ourselves to technology. His book is out July 7th. That's so soon in physical audio and ebook, wherever books are sold, or you can just go to hankgreen.com and that will get you where you need to go. Congratulations, Hank. I'm excited to read uh, the sequel and conclusion to the story. Um, It's called again, a beautifully foolish endeavor and it's out July 7th. So get your hands on it. This is exciting. Yay. So anyways, uh, just wanted to talk about that first before we get into our questions. And I also wanted to just address the fact that things are still strange. These are strange times, you guys. Um, And I put this out on Twitter, but like I haven't been that productive in the past couple of days. And I want you just to know that however you're feeling or whatever you're experiencing, it's okay. It's okay to be where you gotta be. Um, And also just because I know we always have new people. Welcome. Um, I know this is a new channel. Uh, other than my Katie Morton channel, right? This is our podcast channel. And so on this channel, if you're watching it, you're already there. If you're listening, go over to youtube.com forward slash opinions that don't matter. Um, And under the community tab, 
you can turn on notifications for that. And that is where I post asking for your questions for this podcast. I still get a ton um, you know, of comments from a lot of you asking like, hey, where do I get my questions answered, blah, blah, blah. And that is where I ask for them. And I usually ask for them on Mondays or Tuesdays, uh, depending on when I'm going to film it. I usually try to film it on Tuesdays or Wednesdays. Um, yeah. So that's where we're at. Let's get into the first question. Are you ready? Okay. It says, hey, Katie, my question is about why therapists don't just tell us when they can see something in our story that we don't see ourselves. I've been in and out of therapy over about seven years with the same therapist who I've come to really trust. It's been really challenging and slow, and I've come to understand that my dad was or is emotionally abusive and has some narcissistic traits. And my mom was just not there for me emotionally. Altogether, I learned that feelings are bad. And from childhood, I've used various, often unhealthy ways to not feel. I also learned that my perspective and opinion just doesn't matter at all. So it's been super hard to trust my therapist or open up because I have so many layers of defenses that keep me from knowing my own experience or feelings. Now, I think she must have seen all along the stuff that I'm just coming to understand myself. And I'm really grateful for her patience. But I also wonder wouldn't it have been easier and quicker and less expensive if she just told me what your dad did? You know, that was abuse. Also, there's been a couple of times when she's gotten a bit teary when I talked about stuff that now I realize was really harmful, but she didn't push me to understand that at the time. So my question is, as a therapist, why don't you just tell your clients the stuff that we can't see for, uh, that they can't see for themselves? Oh my God, I love this question. It really made me, uh, not giggle, because that's not the right word, but it's just funny because there's so many reasons. And I do want to start off by saying that we do say certain things as a therapist. I just want to make sure. Yeah, we're recording. I want to make sure we're recording. Um, but as therapists, we do point out some things. We'll call out things. And the things that we will call out are like unhealthy behaviors, right? Like if there are things that you're trying to stop, like I see a lot of patients who are struggling with eating disorder behaviors, self-injury behaviors. And if they uh, come to me and are talking about that, I'm going to call it out when they use those behaviors. Does that make sense? So there are certain things that maybe you don't notice like, oh, it's not that big of a deal, right? Especially eating disorders. My patients will say like, but I, I that's not the problem though. The real problem is that I, you know, I restrict blah, blah, blah. And this was me over, you know, I was eating plenty and I'm like, no, you were binge eating. Do you see how your eating disorders sneak in its way? You know, so I'll call things out that you don't see. That's part of therapy. So that should be happening. But that's more on like a behavioral level or something that you've already, at least in one way or another, discussed in therapy. I'm not bringing up, well, that's not, that's not true, actually. I would bring up behaviors that maybe we haven't discussed just to make you aware of them. And that, to that end, it's something to the effect of like, let's say that when we're feeling overwhelmed, we tend to go shopping or something. And you don't think anything of it and you come into session and you're like, oh yeah, I do like my new jacket. I went shopping the other day. You know, I had a really shit day. So I did some retail therapy and um, that happens a few times. And so when next time you come in with something, I'm like, do you notice that when you're stressed, you, you shop a lot? I'm curious about that. You know, I'll be very curious. That's how therapists, that's when they mean like, do you think this is healthy? We'll say, I'm curious about that. So I'll be really curious and I want some information. So I could go on and on about that. But what I really just want you to know is that we will call out behaviors. I don't want you to think that being a therapist just means that we ignore everything and we pretend that it's all cool and we don't 
we just wait for you to come upon the things because that's not all the way true. However, so that's one thing. So we'll call all that shit out. But the second thing is that we don't want to push too much too fast. So just because I recognize that maybe your dad's abusive, you might not be ready for that. That might not be something that you are able to hear right now. You might be like, wow, that's too much. Uh, Or you might feel judged, right? You could get defensive. You could think that I'm, especially when it comes to family stuff, I don't know if anybody else feels this way, but I'm just going to give you a statement and I want you to tell me if you agree with it or not, is I can shit talk my family, but you can't. A lot of us feel that way. I can talk shit about my crazy mom or stupid sister, brother, whatever, but I don't want you to do it because you're not in the family. A lot of people act that way and feel that way. Therefore, therapists don't do that. I don't want you to get defensive or feel judged or get angry at me for calling out a behavior that I've noticed. Um, I want you to recognize that it's unhealthy and I want you to want to change that. Cool. So that's why, um, like with your father, your therapist isn't going to come out and be like, yeah, I think your dad's emotionally abusive and like, he's such a jackass. He's a narcissist. And I know I'm added in jackass and you didn't say that, but You could see where this could go off the rails real quick, especially if, let's say, you hadn't recognized that yet and you still thought that you could like work on your relationship with your father somehow. You would not believe how many people who have narcissistic parents um, believe that like, oh, if I just do this just right, the relationship will get better. If I just say this this certain way, they'll they'll understand and they'll apologize and it'll get better. No, it's like we can't. If we're waiting, like that's just never going to work anyway. That's a whole nother topic for a whole other time. So, so there's that part. And then the final thing that I really want to discuss is the fact that there's something super magical and wonderful about coming to terms with something in our own therapy and figuring out on our own. And what I mean is there's this magical moment when we like those aha moments in therapy where we're like, Oh, it can be for me. It's usually like this. Oh my God. How did I not notice that? Right. But for some people it's like, holy shit. Wow. And this whole time I thought it was, you know, so we can have these moments where all of a sudden we realize these patterns of behavior or we recognize that this person was always just a jackass and we were just trying to do our best and it was not working out. Like I'll remember, um, I remember this one session with my therapist where this is like, uh, a guy I dated years and years and years ago, obviously I've been with Sean for like 11 years. This was like, let's say 15 years ago. He was pretty selfish and he wasn't a bad guy, but he was just selfish. And so everything was about his schedule. And like, I had to work super early in the morning at the time I had a job. I had to be at it like 7am, um, which I know people go to work a lot earlier, but that was early for me. And he would still expect me to like come over and want to watch a movie at like 10 o'clock at night. And then he'd get mad and like hurt if I wouldn't go over. Right. And at the time, which this sounds really stupid, but at the time I was just like, I felt bad. I was like, I just can't, I'm too tired. Or I would do it and then pay for it at work the next day because I'd be super fucking exhausted. And I remember talking to my therapist about this. And I was like, I just don't understand. Like I'm having a tough time and I don't know, I'm probably overreacting, right? I'm downplaying my own thing. Maybe I'm being crazy. I think I'm making this up. I don't really know, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, no, he doesn't have to be to work till 930. You have to be to work at seven that's disrespectful. It's not, that's not healthy for you. And she was like, I want you to try something and I want you to let me know what happened. So she 
called, she, she called it out. She told me, she was like, you're always bending to other people, you know? So I want you to, to give this a try. And she wanted me to, um, not go over at those times and, ha- and make him do things on my time frame. So like, Oh, you want to go out to eat with me? Then we have to go out to eat at like six thirty or seven like normal people, not like nine o'clock, like you would want to do because I have to be to work early. And she wanted me to say it that way. Like I have to be to work early as always. So this, you know, if you want to go out to dinner, I have to go out to dinner now. And guess what? we like, didn't see each other and didn't go out to dinner. Like it just never worked. And we ended up breaking up. It was, it was like, it made sense. But what she did with that is then tell me later. Cause then I went on a date with someone else and there was some other behavior. And she was like, it's the same as that other person. She's like, I'm curious, you know, she's like, do you see the patterns? Do you see the connections or whatever? And all, it took me a while. You guys took me a few months and all of a sudden I was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. I do this in all my relationships. I was like, seriously, Katie. And so what I'm saying, I know that's, I'm like trying to squish a bunch of therapy into like a little story, but that moment. And she kind of, she pointed me in the right direction. Do you think this is similar to that? Do you see any patterns with this? But she couldn't make me see what I didn't or what I, what I couldn't see. It's like, you can't, um, I don't know. It's like, if I'm colorblind, you can't all of a sudden be like, you see that beautiful color teal over there? Like, I'm like, what? So if I'm not even able to see it yet, her pointing it out, isn't necessarily going to make it, uh, as impactful for me. And so in that story, I had that moment, maybe three, four months after she, I'm, or maybe longer after she noticed. Um, and it, it will forever stick with me where I recognize that behavior. I remember that feeling of, Oh my God. And then like seeing it throughout all of my relationships and all of these scenarios. And it's really shifted and changed who I am today. And I don't think her pointed it out early, I think I would have felt defensive and judged and judged. And then I might've been more stubborn and been like, you just don't know. And maybe I wouldn't have continued to see her. And so I think that power in figuring out, figuring it out yourself and coming to that realization is so much more therapeutic than someone just telling you what it is. Um, because no one but you and your own brain and body is going to know what time like when the timing is and when the time is right to come upon that realization, right? Like mine stemmed way back from like situations with my dad and uh, relationships I had in high school and just like crazy shit, you guys. Like I'm like, I always say, tell you guys, I am not better. I don't always know everything and do things perfectly. Um, I'm just trained and now, I mean, now that I've gone through grad school, this is like way before grad school and stuff. But like now that I'm actually a trained professional, I just know better. It doesn't mean I always do better. Okay. So I used to share all of that so that you know that like there is this powerful, uh, I don't know, there's this, this power behind figuring it out on your own. And a therapist shouldn't steal that from you. And I even saw in the comments below this question how someone mentioned that their therapist did uh, tell them something way before they were ready. And it felt like the wind was knocked out of them. And I think that's the worry too, is you don't want to re-traumatize, right? We don't want to go too fast, push too much. Um, just because we recognize something it's often, I'm not going to lie. It's so much easier to see things 
on the outside looking in versus when you're in it because there's too much going on, right? We have all this information and all this guilt maybe, or if it's like patterns from like our past, then we just like don't see them because that's quote unquote normal, right? So it can take us a little while to be able to see it. And so what a therapist will really do just to kind of sum this up so that you don't think that we're just not calling it out and just waiting for you to stumble upon it is a good therapist will take these hypotheses, right? Like I hypothesize that uh, your dad's kind of a dickwad. I think he might be emotionally abusive. I'm not 100% sure yet. Could be narcissistic. And I think your mom maybe just wasn't there for you the way you want. Maybe she's a little emotionally absent. Hmm. Those are my hypotheses, right? And I might have a bunch of them. Like maybe your mom was abusive. I don't know. Hmm. And hmm, you know, I'll think that as a therapist. But what I'll do is I'll put that into the homework and into our work together in the form of goals, homework assignments, conversations, questions I'm going to ask. They'll be very benign. I'm not going to ask directly like, has your mom ever abused you or has your dad ever, you know, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to ask like, did you ever feel really scared when you were a kid? Like when did that, you know, has that ever happened? Or what was your mom like when you were growing up? Was she around a lot? You know, I'll ask questions or have homework journal prompts that I'll, uh, you know, encourage you to to work on. And there'll be things to either negate the hypothesis where you're like, oh no, mom was always there and like she was always comforting and you know, whatever. Or no. And so it'll you either prove my hypothesis uh, correct or incorrect and I move accordingly without you even knowing this is going on because I'm working with my own idea about what's happening and I'm trying to figure out if that's true and if so, what tools will help you best and how can we best work together? Does that make sense? And so even though I might not point it out, know that therapy from a good therapist will always include this and we always take it into consideration. We're not going to just like ignore it and wait for you to come around to it. That won't get you there. And I know that it seems to be slow. And I've heard from so many of you, you're super frustrated with the therapy process and like, oh, I should be moving faster and I should be da, 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 da. That judgment, it just doesn't, it's not helping you because you can only go as fast as you can go. The way to know the therapy is moving quickly enough for you is do you feel challenged most sessions? And challenge means, is there homework that you don't really want to do or questions they ask that you don't really want to answer or it's hard? Maybe it's not that you don't want to. Maybe you don't know how. Maybe I don't even have the answer to that. I never thought about that. That's usually me in therapy. She'll ask me stuff and I'm like, oh my God, I never thought about that. I have to think about it and get back to you, right? So those are all good indicators that you're being challenged and that you have homework and you're doing things, right? So all of that is a good, it's like all showing that you're moving in the right direction. You're getting the support that you need and your therapist probably has some ideas about what's really going on, but they're just trying to test it out. Um, And when you come to that realization on your own, oh, I just can't tell you. It's almost like a bomb that keeps going off. It could be a good bomb or a bad bomb, but it's just like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, right? Um, And yeah, I'll never forget it. It's like changed the way that I interact with people forever and in a better way, right? But like, I I know me, I had to come to it on my own. I bet if all of you think about it for a second, you needed to come to it on your own. Um, Yeah, I hope that that helps. But if I love this question and I thought for a bit when I was reading it, I was like, maybe I could do a whole video on it. So I don't know if you guys would want a whole video. It it might be a little bit more structured than this conversation, but I think it would still have those same uh, key points. Okay, let's get some water and move on to question number two. Um, Also, note how much I blend in with the curtains today. I'm definitely like 70s disco. This is one of my new house dresses that I that I purchased for myself as a 
reward for my finishing a chapter. <laughs> and it was funny because I was like, Sean, do you think this will work for the podcast? And he's like, oh my God, you blend right in with the curtains. And I was like, perfect. It's like camouflage. Okay. Question number two it says, hi, Katie. I hope this makes sense. By the way, most of your questions, like 99.999% make sense. <clears throat> it says, how would you identify the line it, the line between worrying or being anxious about something where it can help you prepare in a good and productive way and being too anxious where it would be better to, uh, to try and just let it go. Thanks. I love this question because first of all, just the idea that we can just let it go. I find, I, I, I hope that that works for some of you. I have yet to see that actually work. Um, but kudos. So, okay. First, there's like three parts to this answer. And the first is the difference between, well, the first is like, what's anxiety? Okay. So let's define anxiety. Now, anxiety in the DSM is described as, well, generalized anxiety disorder, just for clarification, is described in the DSM as a constant state of worry that's uncontrollable. Like no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try to focus, you are not able to control the worry that you feel. So the, you just continue to do it, right? I could try to do all these things to stop it. It just keeps coming back. I distract, distract, distract. Um, I try to get out of the house and the rumination doesn't end, okay? Stress, on the other hand, which I think is important to just distinguish between the two, stress is something that has a, a trigger. Like I'm stressed about this uh, situation at work or going to dinner with this person because this relationship is uncomfortable or I have a project I need to complete. We can have, you know, stress. So that has always has a trigger. And anxiety, on the other hand, does not always have a trigger. I believe that at the root of anxiety, there's always something triggering it, but we're all not always conscious of it. And I know that that's a weird distinction to feel, to talk about, but I feel that it needs to be made. Okay. So stress always has a trigger. There's always something going on that's causing us to feel stressful. Anxiety, on the other hand, doesn't always have a, a conscious trigger. It can feel like it comes out of nowhere, right? Like it, we can have times when we it does have a trigger and it's like, oh, I uh, had to get in front of people in public and then I had a panic attack. We can have situations like that. But a lot of times they'll be like, I just laid down to go to bed and then all of a sudden I was panicking and feeling stressed and anxious or not really stressed, I guess, just feeling anxious. Heart's racing. Mind is racing, right? It can feel like that. Most people have told me that anxiety just feels like it comes on for no reason. So I just want to tease that out a little bit because, and you'll see when I get into the answer. So those that's how they differ. Um, yes, okay. And then, the last thing I want to talk about and the third component that'll kind of tie this together and the reason that I wanted to distinguish between those two is that functionality is really the line between what we can manage and what's actually motivating and what ends up being detrimental to us in our lives. And that detrimental component is I cannot function. And in therapy, we talk about, that's always part of a diagnostic criteria, by the way. There's always this like part of the criteria that says like inability to function or impairs ability to function in their daily life. It's something like that. It's like almost exactly that verbiage, I'm sure. But that's always like the last part of almost every diagnostic criteria, meaning that in order for something to become a mental illness and a diagnosable mental disorder, it needs to impair our ability to function. So when it comes to this, you know, when is it motivating and when, when is it not is really functionality. And I think um, the functionality is like in there's certain parts of our air, of our life and like areas within our life that they talk about. And that's like our ability to care for ourselves, like 
basic hygiene, feeding ourselves, getting enough sleep, all that stuff? Is it impairing any of that? What about our relationships, social, romantic? How are those going? Are we able to keep up with those? Is our anxiety taken away from that? What about our ability to go to work or school? Are we able to get there and focus? How about that stuff? So we we need to consider like all of our different types of relationships, our ability to do work and our ability to take care of our basic needs. And if any of those things are impaired, then we should get some help. And so uh, th- that's kind of the line. And uh, this question is a little tricky for me because it says like, how do you identify something that would be uh, help you prepare and be good and productive? Or like it's too anxious and you should just better try and let it go. Like if you're able to just let it go, that's fucking awesome. You should teach us in the comments down below. However, I find that if it if it's getting to be too much and it's not beneficial anymore, and it's it's not even motive, it's not motivating, it's it's stressful or anxiety provoking, it causes us to not function in our life, then we should talk to somebody. We should really find a better way to cope. And that could be tools like, um, you know, thought stopping techniques. It could be uh, medication if that's something you're interested in. It could be tracking your thoughts. It could be breathing exercises. It could be uh, journaling or calling someone, different coping skills, right? There's a lot of things that we can do to manage the anxiety. But I uh, just want you to know that if it's impairing your ability to function, it's not something that we're just able to let go of. Um, we're going to need tools. We're going to need techniques. We're going to need to see a professional, potentially need medication. And all those things can help us, like, quote unquote, let it go. Um, and so that's really the line. I wish I wish there was a different answer, but it's it's like this. That's the change. Are we is it motivating or is it debilitating? Um, and sometimes we don't even recognize how debilitating something is. And that's why I talked about all the different facets of functionality, because I want you to check in with all of them because they should all be firing on all cylinders. It shouldn't be like, well, yeah, I can take care of my basic needs, but like my relationships are in the shitter and I can barely keep up with work. Uh, That's not good. That means that they're not all firing. And I think a lot of times for those of us in those quote unquote, high functioning depression or high functioning anxiety, um, we have like, we're really good at school and work still, even though we can't take care of ourselves and um, our relationships are in the shit. And so it's like, oh, we're doing everything. We look fine from the outside, but you know, it's not good. And anybody in your life knows it's not good. Um, So yeah, just being aware of those things and making sure all those things are like functioning fully. Does that make sense? I hope that's helpful. Okay. Question number three. Hi, Katie. Any tips for dealing with ruminations? Rolling right off of that question. This is perfect. Um, My anxious brain never, ever rests, all caps. Something could be long in the future or in the past, and it will play in my mind all day, every day, as though it is an immediate danger. Now, first of all, I just want to normalize this because I've talked about this. um, Sorry, I got an itch. I've talked about this a lot when it comes to COVID, how our brains are wired to seek out threat, meaning that we, it, it's it's evolution. It helps keep us alive, right? It, it's part of our survival mechanism in our brain is to constantly be assessing our environment for something that could be threatening so that we can prepare ourselves for a fight, flight, freeze. I mean, not that it really prepares us for freeze, but you know what I mean, the fight, flight response. Um, it, it helps us assess and see if we need to run or need to fight something. It gets us ready. Yeah. And so um, it's very normal when we're in, because the thing is that I find interesting about our our culture and our life is that we're, by and large, in most parts of the world, we're not constantly under threat. Thank God, right? 
we're not constantly a threat. Things are okay. Um, we feel safe to walk outside or whatever. Right. So, um, that energy is still there. We're still looking for the threats. And that's why I believe our brains like to focus on what should have, could have, would have been, or what's going to happen. Maybe possibly, I don't know. I'm going to worry about it. Right. And then we do that rumination. Okay. I just want to normalize. That's why I think it happens. Um, not to mention it's kind of part of anxiety and that inability to contain or control the worry. It just feels overwhelming. And so my tips for this are number one, thought stopping. And I've talked about this before, but it can start with just stop, 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 stop. You can either say it out verbally, like out loud, or you can say it in your head. Stop, stop those thoughts. Because I don't know about you, but once my brain gets on a thought train, I like to call it a train. I don't know, just very visually it works for me because it starts slow, right? Got that thought about that thing I said 10 years ago that that I should have said it differently. I gave this talk. I do this to myself. I gave a talk and, and I use this word. I should have used that word. They probably thought I was stupid. And it uh, chugga, chugga, chugga. And then the more thoughts start to swirl, then that train picks up more cargo. It's like, oh my God, then that one time that I said this stupid thing and then I did this and I was mean to that friend and I'm pretty sure they're talking shit about me. Chugga, 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 it starts to speed up. And that train is like run away. And so we can say stop, 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 stop until that train slows and comes to a stop. And it can take a lot of mental energy to stop it. But I, I stop works for me. I don't know if something else works for you. You guys let me know. Ooh, my nose itch. Um, but if it, you know, if that works, try it. And then the important part. So, okay, we stopped it. Awesome. Five gold stars. The next part is that then we need to, and you knew this is coming, move our brain into something else. The, the thing that we find works the best, and I don't really know why this is, I could probably dig into the research, but I just frankly don't have the time right now um, with all the trauma research, but brains like emotional memories. They can really attach onto them. It's exciting. It feels good. So we need to have a few memories, key moments in our life that we can go back to. You could call these core memories if you want. I've been watching Inside Out. I apologize. Um, but you could do whatever, right? So some of mine could be my trip to Costa Rica with my friend Nina when we were learning Spanish and I was like floating in the ocean and my ears were below the water. It was so nice. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful memory. I can go back to that time. I could tell you, you know, where everybody was, what beach we were at, the swimsuit I was wearing, the way that the the water felt in my hair, all sorts of stuff. Or I could go to Paris with Sean. And I want you to tell me when you pull yourself into these memories, I want you to pretend in your head or out loud like you're telling it to me. I want you to tell it to me in as many details as you can using all five senses. Like if I'm talking about the the Paris uh, memory of Sean and I, like we went for my birthday last October and it was surprisingly warm outside. I could feel the sun on my skin. It was 72 degrees. It was wonderful. And in se- at 7 a.m. in the morning, the bakery downstairs would wake us up with the smell of fresh baked bread and goodies. And it was like sweet, but salty. Oh, so amazing. That smell, right? So on my skin, touch, smell. And then we would sit out and eat the sandwiches they made in the bakery downstairs on the, our little uh, balcony and drink wine. And we would watch across the, the street, there was this uh, gated community. And there were these cats that I think lived in the community. They come in and out this little hole in the gate and we would watch them kind of roam the streets and then pop back into their homes. Um, so you, you, can, you see what I mean? I want you to tell it to me so that I can feel like I'm there. 
And then I can even remember just to take the, it a little further. I can remember the sound of the cars on the kind of cobblestone type road or I could hear them coming through. Um, and the sounds of people eating out on the patios of the, the restaurants around the corner, you could hear them. I could smell the cigarette smoke. Cause I don't know why everybody in Paris smokes. Um, yeah. So those are just things, right? So I'm using touch, taste, smell, you know, what am I seeing? Like you just have to go through all of your senses. Tell me in as much detail as possible so that I feel like I'm there. And that, I don't know about you, but even just taking it back into that story, I forgot what was going on, right? My brain went there. It forgot about other things. So do that. That really works. That really stops that train of nasty thoughts, chugga, chugga, chugga from like taking off. Um, yeah. And it can help you feel better. So th- that's really my best tip. And then, you know, just knowing that it's a new muscle and you might have to continue to do it over and over and over until truly those stop, those thoughts, those like nasty thoughts will just stop on their own. They won't come around as much anymore because we're not engaging with them because something interesting that I'm learning about like memory and memory development in our brain is that it needs to be activated over and over for it to be easily recalled and for it to become a strong memory where we can like pull it out quickly. And so if we're only activating those memories that are good and positive and elicit like a nice emotional response, those will be the strong memories that are easy for us to pull and recall. Whereas the ones that are associated with like, uh, you know, sadness and upset and trauma and whatever, they'll be harder and harder to access. And I'm not saying we should just ignore them and not access them. In therapy, we should access them. However, when we're on our own, that's not really helpful for it's causing us to ruminate all day and we can't stop. That's not helpful, right? So anyway, I hope that that helps. Question number four. Katie, do you have any advice on how to get into the habit of living like a productive functioning adult? Long-term depression has made this difficult. Okay. (laughs) My first thought when I read this was, wow, judgment, judgment, judgment. So much comparison. You guys feel it? I feel it. And if you don't know one of my favorite quotes, and I don't even know who said this quote. I looked everywhere and it just says anonymous. If you can find it. I would love to know. But the quote is, comparison is the thief of joy. And I feel like that's what's happening here. How do we get out of the habit of living like a productive functioning adult? So what does that make you? An unproductive, lazy piece of garbage? That's what it sounds like. And I know you're not that. So that sounds like your depression is being an asshole and you're listening to it and you're believing it as fact, which is just not the truth. So a couple of things. Um, First of all, notice the comparison. Social media makes just things so accessible, which is awesome, but then also fucking terrible at the same time, because I can always look out at someone else. I can, I can look at a different creator. Even I'm just speaking personally, I can look at a different creator or a different person online and automatically be like, Oh, they do so much more of this than me. They do so much more of that. I must be terrible, right? If I'm comparing, how come I can't run six miles in the morning and film three videos and also be writing a book simultaneously? Why am I such a loser? There's always many people doing more. I don't care about those people. They're not me. I'm not them. Ta-da. So 
Limiting the amount of time you spend on social media, I would be interested to see how that affects your mental health. I think that you'll start to feel better. I would I would encourage you to maybe limit or unfollow or mute people for a little while so that you get a break from all of the judgment and comparison that we have online for some reason and just all the negativity that lives out there. Um, maybe give it a little break. And then the second thing is, well, yeah, I guess I'll second get some help for your depression. Long-term depression needs treatment. It needs an assistance from a therapist or a psychologist and potentially to see a psychiatrist and consider medication. Get some help for that. It can really help you feel like you get your head above water of your symptoms so that you don't feel like I can't even do anything. I'm not productive. I'm such a lazy piece of garbage when you're not, you're not, don't believe it. So get some support and notice that. And then the third kind of thing that I want to touch on is checking your expectations. So often we just expect to be able to do things like insert other person, right? It kind of goes right along with comparison, comparison and judgment, and then expectations that we're not meeting. But why are we setting those expectations so fucking high? Why? Why do we do that? I don't know. I don't know either. You tell me. So the truth about it is that, uh, that the expectations we should set need to be based on our own ability and no one else's. So, okay, we have long-term depression. It's made it difficult to be productive, okay? To be productive for us needs to look differently than being productive for someone else. So what might a productive day look for you, you might think? And here are some ideas to get you started. First of all, don't make a to-do list longer than seven things. I've talked about this before. Um, it's part of what our our brain has the ability to hold seven different things in it anymore. It'll forget one or get confused and lose them. Um, and any less than seven, maybe we're not optimizing. So my goals for, for you, maybe for me, would be to get up at a reasonable time, to shower, to feed myself, to stretch, call my mom, Hmm, what else do I want to do? I'm going to record this podcast and then I'm going to leave a nice comment online just to help brighten somebody's day. Boom, done. I'm productive. Ta-da. Um, I think the problem is that we look out to other people and we uh, wonder why we're not as productive as insert other person. And we, f- we feel like we need to accomplish X, Y, Z every day to be said productive functioning adult. And I really want to change the way that we talk about that because I've talked about this in the past about like how I don't uh, agree with uh, hustle culture and like, ah, work yourself into the ground. I'll sleep when I'm dead, get all this stuff done. And like us uh, glorifying that. I don't know if that's the right word, but that's the word I'm going to use right now is like holding it up on a pedestal that like working so hard all day, every day, day, production, production, production of content and creation. That's what success is. I don't agree with that. It's toxic and it's harmful. And it's also like unattainable for like 99.999% of people. Okay. Instead, we need to spend some time appreciating and I guess appreciating is just the word that I want is appreciating people doing what they can and taking care of themselves along the way. Like I don't do well if I don't get nine hours of sleep. Maybe that sounds excessive to some of you because you don't need nine hours, but does that make my need for nine hours like not a a need that I can have? Does it mean that it's not valid? Nope. I'm still going to need it. 
I'm still going to get it and I'm not going to feel bad about it. And so I think part of this is like understanding what you need, what your ability is that day. There are days, you guys, when I wake up and I have a shit ton of stuff on my lists and I have things I need to do and I'm only able to do one of them or none of them. And that's okay. We need to change the way we talk to ourselves about being productive. Productivity does not equal, uh, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for. It's like productivity doesn't equal validity, nor does it equal like success or make you good enough. Productive is just being productive. It's just that you produce something, you create it, you finish something, you did something, you're active. That's not good or bad or whatever. That's just, it's just a verb. It's just an action that we take, right? I was productive. I did a thing. Woo, go you. I don't know why we glorify that so much. So pay attention to when you're assuming that productivity equates to you being a functioning adult, being a good human, being successful, being the best, whatever. And we don't have to take that. Those are not facts. Those are just beliefs that we've absorbed from our toxic society. Everybody talking about like, you know, work harder or do more or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, we can we can do stuff to help people, but that should not come at the cost of our own health and mental health. And so overall, I really just want you to know that number one, getting help for depression is really important if we feel like it's like impairing our ability to function. And then number two, we need to check our comparisons, right? It really is a thief of joy. It really makes things hard for us. And then three is just checking our expectations around around like productivity and what that means for us and like questioning our belief system around productivity. Um, Yeah, hopefully that helps. I know it's hard. I know, you know, this isn't something that only you're struggling with. Don't worry. Um, Yeah, but depression, man, such a shit talker, isn't it? Okay, let's move on to question number five. And that is, hey, Katie, do you think there are some jobs that are magnets for people who struggle with mental health? I was really shocked to learn how extremely common depression, anxiety, and suicide were in my workplace. And I'm talking like nine out of 10 of the people I work with. I thought this was really interesting. And I'm not gonna lie, at first I was like, are there though? Because I don't know if any of you've heard, and I don't know if this is still true. You guys can do some fact checking for me because I didn't fact check this. But back in the day, I remember hearing, this was like forever ago, like in the nineties. I remember hearing that dentists had the highest rate of suicide. So maybe that is still true. I actually don't know. Um, unfortunately, a friend of ours, uh, one of his close friends was a dentist and he did actually take his own life. So maybe that's still true. I don't know. Um, However, I do think, and I've talked about this in the past, like I do think the mental health space does tend to like attract people with mental health issues. And I've talked about this because in relation to good and bad therapists, I think that people who get into the therapy space to like I want to be a therapist because I'm going to figure my own shit out and help understand my family and me. And blah. that is not the goal. The goal should be I get into therapy to help other people. I would love to be part of their healing process. That's a good therapist. A bad therapist goes into therapy to figure their own shit out, which is why you should get into your own personal therapy. Otherwise, you're going to bring up, you know, bad therapist brings up all their own stuff in session with patients um, or, uh, you know, 
utilizes countertransference, meaning like when a patient lashes out, they lash out back versus being able to understand the dynamics at play, calm it down and talk about it in a you know therapeutic manner. So I think that the mental health space is filled with people like that. But then also, if I think about it now that now that I'm talking it out, I think the health space in general, because if I just like, you know, consider all the patients I've seen over the years in the Eden Store Treatment Center, in the hospital, and in my private practice, I can't tell you how many doctors and nurses I've treated over the years. So many. So maybe just the health field and all. And then I guess you could roll dentists into that too, if that happens to still be true. Um, so yeah, maybe it's a health thing, like healthcare industry. And that would make sense, right? Because a lot of us who are like empathic or highly sensitive want to get into uh, jobs that are fulfilling because we can help and support other people. Um, and sometimes when we're highly sensitive or empathic, we can struggle with depression or other mental health issues as a result. Huh, that's interesting. But what do you guys think? I want to hear from you because those are just some of my thoughts. Um, yeah, because maybe maybe it's just us health folks. But you let me know in those comments if you think there are other jobs that are more predisposed to have people or like magnets for people who struggle with mental health issues. Because um, that's really interesting. And I'm surprised now that I even saw that. It's like a light bulb. I'm like, oh, my God, I didn't even think about that. But like, yeah, if I look at like my patient profiles um, and even patients I have who are students in you know, working to be, be in the health field. So, hmm, you let me know. Okay. Question number six. Hey, Katie, how can I stop letting other people's opinion of me affect my emotions? I recently started to stand up for myself after 26 years. I've been in therapy and realized that I'm overly concerned about what people think of me. I want them to only think good of me and I don't want them to hate me. Totally understand. I had a conflict with someone and I told them how I felt for once. I'm proud of myself for doing so. I am too. Round of applause. But I also feel so bad that I sat, I said something and I can't help but think that the other person hates me now. I want to be unbothered and I want to say, fuck how she feels. What she did to me was wrong and it was but I can't. I feel trapped by the cycle of emotions and I don't want to be this way forever. Help. First of all, I'm so proud of you for standing up for yourself. And I want you to know that this is very normal. I struggled with this myself, standing up for myself, feeling like it's okay to take up space. It's okay to be seen and heard. Um, Sometimes I think that's like just some of us, it's more of us on the anxious spectrum. I know that a lot of females have talked about how it affects them, but it affects males as well. I think it's just something that a lot of us struggle with. And the truth about it, it's it's hard work, but it works, okay? So it's a couple of things. The first is that um, we need to build up our own sense of self and our own confidence. And that can be hard, right? Like it can be hard for us to start thinking of ourselves positively, maybe when we never have. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't. And so start noticing the things that you're grateful for every day. That's something that I do on the regular is like thanking parts of my body for helping me. Like, thank you brain for allowing me to focus so I can record this podcast. Yay. And write a book. Hooray. It doesn't have to be big things like that. I'm just saying that there are things that your brain and body allow you to do. And I want you to be grateful for that. And then noticing things that you like about yourself. Like I like that I'm super thoughtful. I think because I am sensitive to people and situations, I'm super thoughtful to those in my life, in my life and like people I'm close to. So consider that. 
Or, you know, what are other things that you like about yourself? I'm really goal oriented. I appreciate that about myself. What do you think about yourself? Come up with those things and tell yourself those things all the time. So that when, if someone randomly, like pretend that tomorrow morning, I ask you immediately, I'm like, hey, you, what are some things you like about yourself? You're like, I can come up with so many. How many do you want? I want you to start to get to a point where you feel that way. Okay. So start talking more kindly to yourself and that will... Having that internal acceptance and love makes external acceptance less and less and less important, which is great. Okay. So try that out. And then I know there's a ton of therapeutic techniques for this or like talk clearly and succinctly and, you know, tell them how you feel and then do some thought stopping techniques. I find personally what worked most for me is taking that positive self-talk a step further so that uh, once I've laid down the boundaries, it sounds like a lot of the work I had to do was learning how to communicate, <clears throat> how to tell the person that they hurt my feelings and that I'm bothered and upset. Okay. So that's hard. But once we've learned how to do that and we can lay down the boundaries, you know, like, Hey, you talked to me this way and I, that really hurt my feelings. And I wish that you wouldn't. Um, and if we want to remain friends, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to need you to not do that anymore or whatever. Um, once we can do that, here comes the the final part, which is kind of what you're doing is like you're ruminating about it. Like, oh, I worry that they hate me and blah, blah, blah. And we're like spinning, right? Totally normal. But what I do is I'll take a scenario. So let's say like I had a friendship that ended a few years ago and I'm fine with it now. But at the time I struggled with this because I'd laid down a boundary. Okay. I'd said like, um, I'm so sorry. You know, we'd had like a falling out and we got back together to get together and like try to fix it or whatever. And she like never apologized. And so I had to say, I don't think we want the same things out of this relationship. And I really feel like we've grown apart and the way that you treat me and others isn't okay. And so I, I, we can't be friends anymore. I know that's really hard and it was really hard and I had to practice, practice, practice. How am I going to say it? How am I going to do this? Oh my God, blah, blah, blah. And then you do it and then you, then you ruminate. <laughs> and so my, what really helped me in that stage was that when I would tell myself the story of this, this friend breakup, I would say, Katie, you, you were such a jerk to her. And then I'm like, no, no, no. So we get in detective mode. I'm like, no, no, no. I don't have any evidence to support that. I actually didn't raise my voice. I didn't cuss. I didn't tell her that she was wrong and terrible. I just said that we didn't have the same goals for the friendship anymore. That the things she said hurt my feelings and that I don't think we'd be friends anymore. None of that is actually me being a jerk. I may not have said what she wanted me to say, but that doesn't make me a jerk, right? So we got to get into this. It's a new muscle, but I promise you now that I'm on the other side of it, it's actually like a knee jerk reaction. Like I can't even talk shit to myself about this scenario because I've already like mental jujitsued it out where like, if I try to say like, you know, you were such a jerk. I'm like, no, I really wasn't. Or um, you shouldn't have, you know, cut her out of your life. I'm like, no, it actually been years of like her only calling me when she had problems and, and, and then shit talking. And, you know, it was like, it wasn't a healthy relationship. So I'm looking for the evidence to support my positive boundary behavior. And it stops that self doubt and that like, oh my God, what, what if she hates me now? And honestly, if someone treats you like that, then, so then this is the other thing too. Cause then I go in my head, I'm like, well, if someone's treating me that way, do I really want to be friends with them? Does it matter if a shitty person hates me? Maybe not. 
maybe it doesn't matter at all. Anyway, so that muscle, it's, it's hard. It's a new little muscle. It takes some effort to get it going. But I promise you that once you get once you get this down, it's super, super easy to keep doing. And I get it's to the point where like even me trying to tell you the story, I like can't come up with other ways that I would think about it because I've like I said, I've already like mentally jujitsu it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, get out of here. Um, so we have to talk ourselves down because our brain wants to go in this black and white, all or nothing stance. It wants to go from, uh, I'm, I'm totally in the relationship. Good. They think of me as perfect. Everything's wonderful to like, fuck how she feels, what she did, you know, what she did to me was wrong. Right. It's either all good or we like, don't give any shits. We care too much. We don't care at all. Right. It's this all nothing thing that our brain really likes to do. When really life happens in the middle. So even instead of, I would even argue to, instead of saying, fuck how she feels, what she did to me is wrong, which is true. And I'm, I'm totally support that, that like conversation, by the way. However, I think what we, what will maybe help you get to where you need to go quicker is by recognizing that maybe it's not the fuck how she feels. Maybe it's the unbothered, that first comment that you said, the unbothered. Maybe it's the, I held up a boundary. I told her what was upsetting to me. And that's just what I had to do. That's not okay behavior. That's not how relationships work. And so we get into this unbothered space. So I know I'm not saying that fuck how she feels is like a bad thing to think or feel. I'm just saying that like, if we consider it less of that, because that might not be a space any of us can live in. Like I personally am too uh, empathic. I'm like an empathic badass, you guys, but I'm too empathic to live in the like, fuck how they feel, blah, blah, blah. Like, the only way I can get to that space is if it's like haters online, because I legitimately give no fucks about that. So there's that, but that's not livable in my life when real relationships, the real relationships that I have that are important to me, I can set up boundaries and I can be unbothered about doing that. And I can allow that to take place. And for me to then call them up later, if, if we're friends, right? And we've, okay, so they apologize and we're fine. And then you, you're fine. Then you move past it. I think the thought is that no one can ever move past a conflict. And that is just not true, right? Then we look for evidence to support that. So really, I don't want to get off topic too much because I can really go on about this forever. But what I want you to consider is building up your own self-confidence, holding those boundaries, laying those out, getting more practice. And you said like, you know, you told them how you felt for once. I'm super proud of you. That's awesome. I know how hard that first time is, but it gets easier with practice, right? And we can start with relationships that don't have as much weight for us. It's easier with those ones first, I found. And then the final and the thing that like you'll get better at as you know, you get better at as you do it more is the supporting your decision. So you held up your side, you put down a boundary, you told her how you felt because what she did to you was wrong. There's your evidence. What she did to you is wrong and hurtful. Did she apologize? Maybe she did. That's even more evidence that what she did was wrong. Did she not? And she has like a lot of failed friendships that just aren't working for her. Then that's also evidence to prove that like, maybe you don't want to be in that relationship. You know, also you have a lot of reasons like for how you said it, right? Like when I'm saying like, oh, I'm such a jerk and she's going to hate me. I didn't cuss. I didn't raise my voice. I, I said it calmly and collectedly. And I said what I needed to say. And I was honest about it. That's clear communication. There's nothing about that that would cause someone to hate me. So check your facts, be a detective to find things that support your positive boundary, um, healthy behavior. Um, yeah. And I, I wish it was easier. I wish uh, like all these answers, I always feel like I wish there was like a magic bullet I could give to you like, boom, fix it. But that'll hopefully get you started. It'll help you 
you know, um, get a little better, recognize when this is happening and look for evidence to support your positive behavior. And again, round of applause for standing up for yourself. I know how hard it is, but I promise you it gets easier and it gets better with practice. Okay. Question number seven says, hello. I just like that. (laughs) Hello. Um, Have you ever dealt with someone who deals with chronic suicidality? A few months ago, I was officially diagnosed with major depressive disorder and moderate GAD, which is generalized anxiety disorder but I can trace melancholy back a decade. Suicide has been in my thoughts nearly since I can remember as well, altering between passive and active thinking throughout my life. I think this is very common. Sorry, I got a tickle here under my headphones. I think this is very common. Um, And yes, to answer the question, yes, I've dealt with someone who struggled with chronic suicidality. Jeez, Louise, Katie. Um, Maybe I need a drink of water. Anyways, I dealt with a patient when I worked in the eating disorder treatment center. It's like a live-in eating disorder treatment center. It's not a day program. It was like a intensive outpatient IOP, we called it, or what a lot of people in other countries call hospitalization. However, these are in homes, um, not hospitals. Now, the, what happened with this patient is she, was, she had had so many suicide attempts. And sorry, there's like something backing up in our alleyway. Sorry, our studio is not soundproof. (laughs) Anyways, she had had so many suicide attempts over the years. And when I was seeing her, we had her suicide, you know, safety plan. We would talk about it a lot. Um, We would try to work with her through like uh, making her feel better. She had all these coping strategies. She had all this support. I mean, she was living in this treatment center, right? And we'd taken away all of her like sharp objects and things she could hurt herself with. However, it was still a worry of ours, right? She'd had so many attempts. We were scared. And the thing that ended up working for her at the uh, request of her psychiatrist was actually um, ECT, electroconvulsive, it's electroconvulsive therapy, I think is what it stands for. I think that's the full term. I might have, might be like shortening one of the words and I apologize. Um, But ECT, you can look it up. I have a video about it. And that's not something for, I know some people will be like, oh my God, it's so barbaric and blah, blah, blah. Everybody's treatment for every, like for, it's everyone's choice. I mean, like different treatment for different people. It might not be right for you. I'm not saying that it fixed her, but it it made it so much better. Oh my God, it was so much more manageable. So I just mentioned that just in case some of you, you know, have had a doctor recommend it and you're like, hell no, we won't go. I understand. It's your treatment. It's your body. It's your choice. Um, but I just want to give you that example of that one patient. And the thing that I think really ended up helping her. I mean, that got things going in the right direction and stopped the like constant active behaviors and thoughts. Um, However, I think what really shifted was instead of, instead of leaning away, like for instance, I think um, a lot of people are scared to talk about suicide, mental health professionals as well. um, And a lot of family members too, right? People get scared about it. They think uh, that means that we could make somebody think about it. Who's not thinking about it. We could cause somebody to want to, um, to take their own life. You know, when all those things aren't true, you can't make somebody think that way. You can't cause somebody to do it by just asking about it. Um, That's not how things work. Okay. So I think what's really important is that we lean into the conversations about it, not away because, and just hear me out because I feel like the more we shy away from it, the more we ignore it, the worse it gets, right? It's like 
it's like a bacterial infection or something. If you get it treated right away, it can clean it right up. They just take, they just clean it up, put a bandaid on it. We're all good. But if they let it sit there and it infects more and more of, of our, our body and our cells get infected by it, then it's a bigger issue and it might be harder and harder to stop. Um, and so, I really think that as a community, as a mental health community, we really need to lean into these conversations. And what I mean by leaning in is we need to seek to understand the causes and the triggers of these suicidal thoughts, because suicide is just a symptom, you guys, of something else going on. In my experience, it usually comes out of some kind of trauma or emotional upset um, or deep, deep depression for a really long time, right? Depression is like such a it sucks away all of our hope for the future. It makes us feel bad about things in our past. And it just throws us in a dark hole and closes the door. But we can get out of that. And we have to understand what got us there in the first place. And just like anything, it's like the root of the root, right? When it comes to chronic suicidality, we need to talk about it. We need to seek to understand. I would have a lot of questions like, because you said suicide's been in your thoughts nearly since you can remember. Well, do you remember what it was like when you were a kid? Are there any memories that aren't filled with suicidal thoughts? If the answer is no, then I would want to track back to some of your earliest memories. I'd have questions about when you were growing up, what your parents were like, what your sister or brother was like, how, you know, what was your room like? Tell me about that. We'd go through little stories to try to figure out when it started and why. And then I would also be curious about like depressive symptoms has been around forever. Does it run in your family? Um, I'd have a lot of different questions about it. And are there certain things that make the suicidal thoughts worse or better, stronger, not as strong, passive, more active? When's the last time it was the worst? What was happening then? What happened like a few months before that? I'd just be very curious, collecting all our research, right? We're being detectives. We're looking for evidence for our case. And so I want to figure out what, what the root of the root of this, what's causing it? What happened? Why is the uh, suicide the one way out that we keep going back to? What created that thought and belief and then potential behaviors, right? And so I know that that's not really the question. The question is just have you dealt with someone and the, that answer is yes. But I, I really want to, I really think it's important that we lean into these conversations because I'll be honest, like even online, like anytime I mention suicide, it's not monetized. This probably won't be monetized. I'm talking about it. And I, I, I understand, but it's also super frustrating because it's it's people that maybe should be talking about it, like other professionals on the platform should be talking about it more. And that's going to make it harder because people can't make money. And I really just think that the more we talk about something, the more we can learn. And how are we supposed to to understand and learn about something when we can't talk about it openly all the time, right? It's like, we can't fix what we don't understand. And if we're trying to to heal and and quote unquote, fix someone who's suicidal, we have to talk about it. We have to understand from their perspective. We have to learn together. And so anyway, I know I'm off on a tangent, but I've just had those thoughts about it lately where I'm like, I feel like it just, we need to lean into it more. We need to be open to having these conversations because I'll be honest, like in the mental health space and, or even just professionals, health professionals, a lot of people are scared. They're scared to talk about it. They're scared because they're going to have to 5150 you or that they're going to have to put you on suicide watch or something like that. And I can't tell you how many times I actually have this journal, uh, we call it a journal club, but it's really just like a get together with other uh, clinicians, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, other therapists. There's a bunch of us that get together every month. And we talk about cases that are tricky or new research we've been reading, just anything, you know, for an hour over lunch. It's really nice. It's in my office building, so it makes it even easier. Um, however, I can't tell you how many times in that meeting I've heard from the other clinicians that, 
they think they're like, you know, Katie, I understand, but like, you really should 5150 them or you really should, you know, do, 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 do this. You should put them on suicide watch. You should call their family or their parents. And I understand because if someone uh, takes their own life on our watch, right? If it's like one of my patients and they take their own life, there are legal ramifications for that. And they're going to want to know that I took every, every step to protecting them from that. And if I didn't 5150 them and, you know, people thought that I should, I could be in deep shit. And I get that. And I get the worry, but oftentimes like if someone goes on a 5150 or if uh, I do put someone on a suicide watch, that can shut them down. That that makes the, them out of reach from me so that I can't learn more about the experience, that I can't uh, be educated with them and help pull them out and better understand the situation. And so I know that I'm off on a tangent, but I just really think that that we need to be more open to these conversations. It needs to not be as stigmatized. We need to understand it. We need to seek to understand, not judge. Um So yeah, I think that's really it. And I I would encourage you, the person who asked this question and all the people who thumbs up that because they feel it too, would encourage you to be curious about your suicide. Obviously, if you're actively suicidal, please reach out for help. Call 911, reach out to your healthcare provider, your therapist, whomever, uh, call the suicide hotline. There are tons of resources out there and that's not the time to try to do the work I'm talking about. But when you feel a little bit better and not so actively suicidal, it's more passive. I want you to be very curious about it. I want you to do your research. I want you to um, consider what caused it this time. Was there a trigger? Is there never a trigger? I'm very interested and I think you should be too. So learn about yourself, learn about your experience with suicidal thoughts, where they came from, when they started, when they stopped, why we had, because a lot of my patients will say, well, I had this period where they went away. And I'm like, hmm, interesting. Or I had this period when it was real bad. Huh. Why was that? Tell me about that. So anyways, long story short, be more curious. I think we should all lean into it. I think it should be a conversation we're all open to having. Um, as a clinician, I'm doing as much as I can to support that. Um, but anyway, I just want to talk it out with you guys. And there's probably more I can do too, you know? I'm not perfect either. I'm just trying to do my best. Um, but yeah, okay, moving on. Question number eight says, people always used to describe me as outgoing and overall very social. But ever since I started struggling with depression, I've become socially very, very awkward. That was all caps. I stutter a lot, feel anxious and embarrassed for no reason around people, can't speak, get easily nervous, etc. Why is this? And how can I go back to socializing like I used to? Help. This is a great question. Um, And the truth about this is a couple of things. First of all, depression needs treatment. This sounds like in some ways it's taking away part of your personality. You used to be described as outgoing and overall very social, but now you're not and you feel like you're not yourself and what the fuck is going on and it's it's bad. So I would get some support. Reach out. It's okay. Therapists aren't scary. I promise. Some of us are shitty at our jobs, but you'll notice. Wait till you find someone you connect with that has helpful tools it gives you resources. Find those people. They're online. There's BetterHelp, Talkspace, um, Seven Cups of Tea. I know people have like good opinions, bad opinions, whatever about any of those things. Um, however, they're all resources. So find one that works for you. Find something that feels good. And yeah, do it. Um, because I think, and potentially medication might assist as well to manage the depression. If, you, if you're inter- interested in that, I think you should see a, see a psychiatrist so they can properly assess you. Wow, that was, I don't know why I had trouble saying that. Um, 
Yeah, because I can help. I've talked about medication. It's always like a life raft if we're drowning in the symptoms of our depression, anxiety, whatever it may be. We can't do any work in therapy. We can't work on this social anxiety that's come out of our depression, right? Um, And so medication can help you get your head above water. And I also just want to recognize that depression and anxiety, I believe they're on the right side of our brain is where they're stored. I'd have to look up exactly where, but there's like certain areas they know are associated with depression, anxiety symptoms it's all over, but there's a certain part where they like, that's where most of it is, I guess. Um, or that used to be the research. You guys double check me and get back to me. Cause I'd read it eons ago when I was creating a video. Um, anyways, it sounds like you have a little depression, anxiety, cause they're like two peas in a pod. And sometimes we feel one, sometimes we feel the other. And if we're really unlucky, we feel both at the same time, which is super uncomfortable. So, um, it sounds like for you, you're feeling them both at the same time, potentially, or you're, you're feeling anxiety most right now. Um, and to how to get back to socializing like I used to. The best way we can do it, aside from treating the depression or anxiety, is to do it slowly. So it sounds like we, were, we have somehow, with our depression, created some bad experiences socializing excuse me, where we become very, very awkward. You stutter a lot. It sounds like you've had these experiences that are super uncomfortable and they're bad. They make you feel worse about it. Then you're more anxious about potentially trying to socialize again and just goes spirals down. So instead of continuing to create those negative experiences around socializing, I would encourage you to engage with just a couple people in your life that are super supportive in nice small groups. I know things are weird because of COVID. So maybe it's like Zoom or FaceTime with like one or two other people. And that's it. We start slow, we start small, and we grow from there. Because what I want you to create is this healthy foundation, which maybe you used to have right before depression. I want you to have this healthy foundation of you engaging properly with and supportively, like just having these wonderful social interactions where you feel good. It doesn't have to be like, I was amazing and so hilarious. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about you can have social interactions where you don't feel awkward, you don't stutter, you don't feel embarrassed. You can do that. And I want you to build these experiences along before we start maybe increasing the number of people or going out to scenarios where maybe we don't know as many people. I want you to start small. I want you to start with people that you trust, that you feel more comfortable with so we can start building these social foundations of like, I can do it. I've, I know we're like building the evidence essentially for your case that you can be social and thought of again as, you know, very social. Um, yeah, just little by little, because otherwise we start to think that like, that's all we can do and it's always going to be bad. And depression just builds on that and loves it and isolates us and shuts us out. And so we have to fight back. And that's why starting small is good. And I would encourage you as you grow to like allow other people to add someone in, like after we get up, you know, two or three people that we know, it's okay to have one person who you don't. And that's a good challenge and a good chance to talk to someone different and take breaks to go back to someone that we know that we can talk to without stuttering. Then we try again with that new person. We're just building. It's like uh, building mastery kind of. I know they talk about that in DBT. It's like one of the things, one of the skills, but I'm just saying like in reality, we are building that mastery. We're, we're allowing ourselves to feel good at something, to learn how to do it again, because our depression made us forget. Doesn't mean we can't. It just made us forget and we have to learn again and that's okay. So Give that a try and let me know. And as always, if any of you have any tips and tools of your own that help, let us know. Okay, but don't isolate. I know COVID's making a lot of people isolate. 
Okay, question number nine. It says, hi, Katie, how do I help a friend deal with a significant amount of self-hate? They take every opportunity to put themselves down to the point where they have had a near suicide event. They are not currently getting psychological help, and I like to see what I can do or teach them to get them to self-hate less often. Okay, first, and I'm sure if any of you have been listening or watching for a long time, you know that I always say this and I just have to say it. So we cannot make someone feel better about themselves or get better. I just have to say it. We can't do it. We can't make them feel better. We can't make them uh, want to get help. We can't uh, change their self-confidence. Uh, yeah. Okay. That's on them. And I know it's hard, but I just have to put it out there because you literally cannot do it. Right. I can't get in someone's head and make them all of a sudden feel better about who they are and what they're doing. Right. That makes sense. How could I do that? I can't. So just keep that in mind. However, what we can do and something that Sean and I even do for each other sometimes is just like noting self-hate that someone spews because we all do it. Let's just be honest by a raise of hands. We all do it. Yep. Yep. I see hands everywhere. I'm just kidding. Um, but we all do it. But like, for instance, I'll tell Sean, I'll be like, God, I was so unproductive today. I'm such a lazy piece of shit. I only got like a couple pages written. I didn't do that thing. I didn't blah, blah, blah. And he's like, you did fine. Stop. Stop talking about yourself like that. Like he'll stop me. Okay. Like, da, 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 da. stop talking like that. And we can do that for our friends and family. We can be like, knock it off. You're great. Stop talking shit to yourself. We can call it out. We can say it. So you can do that. And then you can check in and you can support. And that can look like, hey, you know, there are a lot of online resources for therapy. That's been helpful for me. Do you want me to help you do that? If they're like, yeah, but I don't have the energy to do it. Do you want me to start the process? I, you can answer the questions. I'll type them in. Yeah, you could do that stuff. You can help. You can offer that kind of support, but that's it. They have to want to do it. They have to engage with you. Um, and we can just check in. How you doing? Maybe that means we come over and just sit with them. That's the best way to support. Um, and yes, I wish we could change people. I wish we could make people feel better. Trust me, my job would be so much easier. However, that's not how it works. Um so yeah, I hope that that helps. And you're a great friend for even reaching out. Um, but know that even just doing those things will really, really benefit your friend. And sorry, there's a plane flying over if you hear it. Okay, final question. Question number 10. Hey, Katie, I'm still trying to get an understanding of the whole transference thing. I was wondering what your answer is about transfer transference in the therapeutic relationship with the therapist is the same sex as the client. Okay, it doesn't matter if like what the genders of the different, um, what the sex of the therapist or patient are, it doesn't matter. I'm just throwing that out there because for any of you who don't understand what transference is, transference is when we have, take a relationship from our past. Let's say I never got along with my mom growing up and I'm going to transfer that relationship yeah, onto my therapist. And then I'm going to treat my therapist just like I do my mom. I'm going to get mad at her. I'm going to get irritated. I'm going to get, I'm going to yell. I'm going to shout at her to shut up, whatever, whatever it's normally like. I'm going to act out of that. So I could even, if let's say I'm not the aggressor in that, then I could act like my therapist is being too harsh. I can be very like demure and oh, I'm passive and mm, just acting out of that relationship as if it's the same. A therapist who's worth 
their salt will not react back. They'll be very curious about this interaction. Let's say this was happening to me and I was your therapist. I would say, you know, your mood has really shifted lately. You seem kind of, um, you know, like passive, like you're worried that I'm being too aggressive. I'm curious where that's coming from. Have there been other situations in your life where this has come up? I might ask about it calmly, collectively. What a therapist shouldn't do is what we call countertransference, where which is when they transfer something, that relationship onto the therapist and the therapist acts out of it. So then instead of me being like, I'm curious, has this ever happened to you before? Do you have other relationships that feel this way? Blah, blah, blah. Instead of that, I can be like, well, you're being weird. What's happening? How come you're being so different? And I act as the parent. I like almost assume the role that they're expecting me to. Um, and it sounds very strange, but it's very, 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 very common. And the reason for it is because oftentimes our brain is trying to work out a traumatic or attachment-based or just a tricky situation. Our brain's trying to find a way to figure it out. And so it can try that out with different relationships, meaning it'll try to have that kind of scenario again, thinking, oh, this time I'll get it better. I'll figure this out. We'll process this through. We can make this better. Yes, we can. So, but the truth is that doesn't actually help. It helps in therapy because if your therapist is good at their job, then they'll recognize it's happening. They'll call it out and they'll help you kind of process and and parse what parts about it, like where they're coming from and what you can do to work on it. And so that's kind of how it works. And also I want to recognize that you can have a crush on your therapist. That is a type of transference, but it's not transference as a whole. And the reason that you'd get a crush on a therapist or think you're in love with your therapist um, is just because of the confusion around the relationship. This often, I find this to be most common in my patients who've been sexually abused in some way or had really emotionally neglectful parents. And they're just seeking some attachment, some attention from someone. And a therapist gives you their unfettered attention for an hour every week. And that can get very confusing. And we can struggle with thoughts and feelings like, I love my therapist. I want to date my therapist. I have a crush on my therapist, which is very normal. No need to be embarrassed, but it's something that should be talked about because it actually isn't the a real relationship like you think it is. Okay. Um, so I hope that kind of helps you understand because uh, transference is really just that. So it doesn't actually matter which sex the client or patient are. It's really just that relationship that we're acting out of. Um, yeah. And it's, it's very, very common. I feel like it happens with almost every one of my patients, just depending on the situation. Um, and it's something that most therapists are good at managing and acknowledging and treating. Um, but yeah, that's what it is. And so there, I don't, that's my answer for it, I guess. Um, yeah, I was just making sure I didn't miss anything in that question, but yeah, transference is normal. Talk about it, process it. A good therapist will help you work through it. Okay, that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this was helpful. Again, there's always themes, right? Every week in the questions. And I feel like the theme this week was definitely about like depression and anxiety. Um, there's a lot of that going on. And I, I want you all to know that that's very normal. It's okay. We're in this crazy time right now where we all feel this little low grade amount of stress um, and upset just from being and so with anything else going on, it can be really, really hard. So know that you're not alone. Uh, thank you so much for listening and watching. And I will see you next time. Bye. Ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.